Devin Ifadu, thank you so much for the information that we've already been able to share, the discussions that are going on, um, the testimony that we've heard from the experiences of everyone here. And I pray, Lord, that you may just continue to help us to learn from each other, from one another, to see how we can be more effective in reaching out to people for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <coughs> so the third part of our workshop is entitled The Digital Age. So we introduced this in the last part. Again, this is going to be on the handouts, so you can have them at the end. I just didn't give them to you at the beginning, just in case curiosity tempts you to read ahead of me. So I'll keep them until the end. Um, but yeah, the digital age. <coughs> we established in the first part that the world is truly global. And the question is not so much would the apostles or Jesus ever use social media as a way of reaching out to people. But the question is more, I guess we have what would Jesus do? But if Jesus was on Twitter, <laughs> what would Jesus tweet? And really, so we're trying to think, how do we actually use social media in a way that would actually impact people for the better and not for the worse? I think you often find that in every single thing, there's always going to be a way that God can use it for his glory. And Satan can use it <clears throat> in a way that does, dishonors God. For example, Jesus went to feasts. <laughs> Jesus went to parties. But there's some parties that Jesus would never have been a part of. And so it's not always the event in and of itself, but it's kind of like the attitude of the person who's approaching it that modifies the whole thing. And so, yes, there are drawbacks, but I believe that our apostles would use, they would have a Twitter handle or something, I'm sure. We read this verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. <coughs> and it says that, You'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What can you notice about those four places that I mentioned? It goes from the inner circle outside. It goes from the inner circle and many goes out. Have you ever had the statement that charity begins at home? Mm. When we do evangelism, where do we often begin? In, 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 in reality, in our experiences? <laughs> we want to talk to the strangers, right? <laughs> we want to start at the end of the earth. So everyone's just thinking, oh, can you please, um, you know, that crowdfunding page. I want to be a missionary in Mongolia or something like that. Mm -hmm. And think, well, have you done anything around your neighborhood first? And your family and your friends? That's free. And so really the point I was trying to share with you <clears throat> is that this whole digital age that we've already spoken about, it means that we are more connected than we were before. That means that it's all about connectivity. When you think about yourself, you have your own personal network. There's you, obviously. <laughs> then there's your family. You can't choose them, so they're just there. Your friends, you have some choice. Your name or your associates, people that you work with, at work you interact with them at university in lectures. You have your, yeah, and your neighbors as well would also be a part of that. And then you have the infamous Joe blogs, the random stranger on the street, person X that no one knows. When we do evangelism, we often want to talk to Joe blogs. And we never really talk to our friends, our associates, or our family. Why is that? Is it just a novelty? Or is there a reason why we don't share with our friends? Or maybe you do share. What makes you share? If you don't share, or if people don't share in general, what is it that makes it easier to speak to person X rather than your own family or your neighbors? I think you share with someone you don't know mm -hmm. and they reject it it's less painful because you're never going to see them again yeah but if it's like someone close to you it, yeah it, it hurts <laughs> it 
Yeah, so sometimes it's because that rejection is more profound when it's someone that we actually care about and their opinion matters. Mm. And not even just that, I think sometimes um, the gospel is often by its nature offensive. Yeah. And so sometimes when we share it with, say, like our dad isn't a Christian or our mum isn't a Christian and we're living a certain way and they can perceive it in a way or we share the gospel with them and it, it you know, convicts them but it hurts, yeah. then that can actually break relationships. I think often when we share with people closer, mm -hmm. it can have consequences, it can become awkward, you know, if you've said something yeah. to someone and they're like, oh, you managed to keep the Sabbath and you're like, yeah, and they're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't like you anymore. And it's kind of just, <laughs> it can have consequences. When we just tell Joe blogs and they're like, well, I don't want to keep the Sabbath, you're like, okay, see you never. And yeah. <coughs> it's easier to evangelize to strangers because you don't have to see them again. When you evangelize to somebody who is in your inner circle, chances are that the day that they've rejected you, you see them again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because the hardest part we actually have is follow-up. Like yeah. Our churches fail out all the time. It's exactly. Like and, and that's often what we have to do with family. It's like every day I'm stuck with you, you're stuck with me. Exactly. So we go for job blogs who does not really live anywhere near us. And then we don't, never do any follow-up on job blogs. So job blogs are just lost in translation. We never actually speak to them again. But it's great because, you know, we took a picture of it and again we can post it in the messenger and it was a success. But have we actually made any real impact in Joblog's life? Sometimes we have done. But would it be no more effective if we actually reached out to people that we can reach out to over and over and over again? I just want to say, like, for me, it's so hard to speak to my... My family is like Christian and stuff. Yeah. But to speak... Oh, you mean this as in, like, the size of your family? Oh. My, my house. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak about this like to my father, it's quite strange. Mm -hmm. But I think it's easier to reach my family and my friends because you don't need to speak, you just need to, to live. Yeah. You know what I mean, like, for example, I live, I live with my friends at university and stuff. I don't speak to them about Jesus and about a heavy event in the church. Before I speak to them, they already know that <laughs> I will be doing something in the church. I don't know when I told them. Yeah. I, can I go? <laughs> but, I mean, I think friends and family can be easy. Feel like it's just. Mm-hmm. Don't speak, just speak. <laughs> exactly. I know. Oh. When I was younger, I was ashamed of the gospel, and I was ashamed of sharing it to my friend and uh, even my. But now I, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Especially at my at my work, where um, uh, you know if they are not Christian, so they like to go to bar, club, and everything. And I'm like, especially on Friday night. So I'm like, no, it's Sabbath. And they look at me like, what? Mm. Yeah, it's so much. So not going. Yeah. And after they asked me, but when I was younger, I was like, oh, yeah. I'm busy tonight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I have something else to do. <coughs> but now I think, when you spend uh, like five days a week with people, yeah, you have so many times to just share something. Or um, I know that sometimes they. They feel that they need to to have some meditation, so I bring some books and we read on the morning and we just share. And after we spend the day, we discuss. And and on Sabbath, I told them, stop talking to me about your stuff. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm Sabbath, so Leave me alone. And they get it. Yeah. They just they respect like, that. It's okay. And some of them are like, yeah, she's going to church. So what? Mm -hmm. So when you you don't have to be ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. People need it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And when you share it, they feel like, oh, yeah, I have someone to talk to mm -hmm. when I need help or when I feel I'm lost. So I, yeah. now I'm, I think it's good. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah and then we'll come back to Tama and then we'll move on. I just wanted to add <coughs> what the said about um, having to, to live yeah. to be able to, to share the family. But sometimes it's not always easy mm -hmm. um, because, you know, like what Jesus said, that a prophet is never accepted in his hometown. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people knew your past. Yeah. They don't take you seriously when you, um, you know, you, you kind of try to cover this new... Mm -hmm. yeah. um, oh, you're still a Christian now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I've tried the active going to say things when really, if, if you just focus on connect to Jesus and you live that life, it's more of a witness than, mm -hmm. you know, if you, you, you know, not always, obviously, but yeah. it can be a really good witness. Yeah. And I think, it, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Atama, Amenu. I was just going to say, like, it's the whole idea, like you were saying before, like, of trying not to insult as well. Because a lot of the times we're like, oh, well, you think you're better than me because you don't do this, or that kind of idea. Yeah. And also sometimes, like, I find myself hiding <coughs> behind the idea of, like, oh, yeah, well, they can see Jesus through the way I live my life. Mm -hmm. But really, when they see me and they ask certain questions, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll give them, like, a quick answer when really they're probably seeking for more. Yeah. So a lot of the times we're just like, oh, I'll just be a living testimony. But really, we don't. <laughs> 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 you best. could give them a lot deeper understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They'll probably accept it more than Joe blogs because it's coming from someone who loves them. Yeah. yeah. Living testimony. That does not speak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think for me, I can relate with this like, whole idea of why it's so hard to witness your friends and your associates. I think growing up, I had a very, very irrational fear of rejection. And that whole idea of, I mean, this sounds really, really strange. The one thing that I hated most about church was evangelism and door knocking. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this workshop, but anyway, God has his own, he has a sense of humor, let's just say. But, you know, I used to hate evangelism and I used to hate door knocking because it's like, you know, you knock on this door and then there's that awkward 10 seconds that lasts for a lifetime and you have no idea if you're going to be greeted with a smile or an anger or a dog. It's like, you just don't know. They open the door before you even speak, then they close it and all the different things. And I just like, I used to hate evangelism. Um, when your friends ask you, oh, you know, what are you doing this evening? You know, this weekend, oh, I'm just going to a friend's house, you know, instead of saying I'm going to Bible study. Uh, <clears throat> you know, people ask, you know, what are you doing on, sa on Saturday? You know, I'm just, you know, just going, just meeting with some friends and family. You don't say I'm going to church, you know. <laughs> people can't know that you're a Christian, all the different things. And we used to hide, or I used to hide, because I used to find it so difficult to actually tell people I'm different. And I think it's just that whole thing is like feeling like you belong is a very, very fundamental part of the human experience. That's why God says it's not good for man to be alone. He'll make him someone like him. And when you feel like you're alone, it's the hardest part of it being a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I always now think about Romans chapter 1 verse 16. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. When Paul says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, imagine if you went to a restaurant with your friend and you had a three-course meal. And then you finish this meal, and then you're walking out of the restaurant, and when your friend says, turns you and says, you know, I'm not really that hungry. What would you say to that statement? Sorry. You have gone to a restaurant, and you have a three-course meal with your friend. And then as you're walking back home, your friend turns you and says, oh, you know what, Christoph, I'm really not that hungry. What would you say to that statement? Does that statement make sense? You just had a three-course meal, so why would you be hungry, right? Yeah. <laughs> when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it makes no sense unless if there was a reason to be ashamed of the gospel. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> That's what I'm trying to say. When you look at the book of Acts, it talks about how Christianity was viewed as a sect, as a cult, 
basically all the things that people sometimes attach to Adventism. And so it makes no sense for Paul to say, I'm not ashamed, if Christianity was popular. He's saying that he was not ashamed of proclaiming something that everyone else looked down upon. He wasn't ashamed to be different. And so we should not be ashamed to be different too. When you look at the apostles, really evangelism is about building relationships, building networks, building confidence. Christ's method, he won people's confidence before he bade them follow me. And wherever they went, <clears throat> they tried, this is where it comes, they tried to find a mutual ground, common ground with people who they did not necessarily speak to. Like for example, you look at the apostle Peter, when he was speaking to the people in Acts chapter 17, um, the Greeks at the Areopagus, and then he starts saying, you know, I was looking around at your churches, how you worship, and I saw that you have this altar that's written to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that God that you do not know. He started off where they were, and then if you read Acts chapter 17, he says, you know, some of, your prof- some of your poets say this, some of your poets say that. He quoted what they already knew, and then he broke down the whole gospel and how God is not worshipped by temples made with human hands as though he needs nothing. He found a common ground, and then he related with them, and then he gave them something that they did not have. So when we say that we're supposed to be distinct, we're not saying that we're supposed to be exclusive or supposed to go out as if we're better than other people. We go out and we find how we can be able to find common ground with people, and then we can be able to take them from where they are to perhaps where God needs them to be. To share this idea, Paul wrote in the book 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 to 22, <clears throat> and he says to the Jew, I became as a what? A Jew. To win the Jews. And he says to those who are under the law, I became like one? Under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became what? Weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might win some in other words what Paul is saying is that I was always looking for a way of relating to people that I was trying to reach if they were of this particular class I would think okay what part of myself with my conscience can I use to relate to as much as what they have and then be like them so that I can be a part of them winning their confidence he was adaptable in other words sometimes we are a bit too rigid do you think we have a way of how things should be done, how we should eat, how we should speak, how we should dress, how we should do all of these different things. We never think, how are the people around me going to perceive me? So our behavior is important because it impacts our ability to relate with people that we're trying to reach. So there's a difference between compromising and adapting. Jesus did not ask us to compromise, but to adapt so we can be able to build relationships. Evangelism is about relationships. Someone once says that we never baptize strangers, we baptize friends. And I think that's to a very extent true. Even when somebody has come to an event for one night, it's usually because someone else told them about it. Jesus himself was a very highly social being. Whether he was speaking to a little child, to a social outcast like the woman caught in adultery, or to the woman at the well, he behaved in a way that broke social boundaries He was not limited by what everyone else said was acceptable. He did what he needed to do to win the soul. So the woman at the wall, she's like, why are you speaking to me? I'm a a Samaritan. You Jews don't speak to Samaritans. And when Jesus said, I'm not here to act how the Jews act. I'm here to do what needs to be done to win you for God. 
And sometimes we have to change what we think is acceptable behavior sometimes because sometimes what we say is acceptable is simply tradition. <laughs> what we are used to, what we are accustomed to. And we have to sometimes think bigger than our present experience because you can never always really grow inside of your comfort zone. Evangelism is about building relationships. We talked about this before, Facebook or social media. This is a chart. There's um, an organization that's called We Are Social. What they do, they track kind of like the uses of social media in different parts of the world. And so this page is specific to the United Kingdom, produced January 2016, so it's up to date. And it's basically saying that, remember before we said that 52% of the UK population actively use social media. Of that 52%, so you're thinking, okay, which social media platform is the one where people are actually using? <coughs> Facebook is 47%. So that's like by far the most popular place for people to go. And then along with that, Facebook is Facebook Messenger, 32%. So basically Facebook <laughs> is very much popular. But then also WhatsApp is quite popular as well. Twitter, 20% and Instagram, and then Skype, and Snapchat. Now, I think that this is often neglected. You know, sometimes you want to have a Bible study with someone, and when they move away to go to university, and think, oh, you know, unfortunately, we can no longer have Bible studies. Just use Skype, yeah. <laughs> if not your phone. So it allows us to connect in real time with people who are not necessarily in our immediate vicinity. And that's a powerful tool. That means that Paul no longer had to write a letter that takes three months to reach there. He can just dial up someone and just call them and say, Church of Corinth, how are you doing? <laughs> just have a testimony because in France we like to do strike. Mm -hmm. you know, Striking. Yeah, they like to not work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, with my friend, we have uh, we trying to make uh, Bible studies every week. Mm -hmm. But when there's week, we can't do anything. And uh, sometimes we uh, we have a prayer meeting through Skype. Yeah. Because it's easier and. Even if you don't have a computer, you can use your phone now, your smartphone now. So everywhere, even interviews, sometimes they ask me, do you have Skype? <laughs> yeah. But uh, you can, it's really easy and really useful, even with your friends mm -hmm. around the world. Yeah, you can exactly. Stay here, pray together, and it's like she was there. Yeah, and it's really just thinking, you know, those common things that we find in everyday places. How can I take that and use that for the glory of God? Yeah. Skype is just something that you can use to s communicate with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents who are in a different country. Yeah. Well, why don't I just use that to have a Bible study with someone? Mm -hmm. you know? And then we'll talk about why that's relevant later on as well. But I have a confession to make. <clears throat> I was one of those people who thought, <laughs> could any good thing ever come from Snapchat? <laughs> I didn't think it was possible for anything to glorify God on Snapchat. I don't know, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I don't actually know what Snapchat is. I've just, from what I've heard, I'm just like, that's just Nazareth or something. There's nothing good there. But something amazing happened on Friday or Thursday. We were preparing for GYC. And so one of my other responsibilities, like just like resourcing. So just printing booklets and ordering the printed stuff, the lanyards and all those different things. And also the material that we had for evangelism. Now, I wasn't able to do it myself, so I got my able helper to help me. And so I was putting together the books and all the tracts and the DVDs that we're going to be using for evangelism. She took a picture of it, and then she just says, but she took a picture of it, I can't remember what she said, and then she shared it on her Snapchat. 
you know, this is what she's doing this weekend, you know, surrounded by all these books. And then the amazing thing is that one of her friends on Snapchat responds and says, oh, that looks so interesting. Can you buy one for me, please? A non-Christian friend from university. And then she was like, yeah, sure, you can have it for free if you want to, because we're going to give them for free. Anyway, it's like, you know, you're going there to look for people who want these resources. If you're going to come and beg them for me, of course, I'm going to give them to you for free. And so, you know, she offers to give them for free. And then a day later, it progressed. Now, I think it's become like a bit of a trending conversation. So then someone else basically said something along the lines of hashtag movie night, you know, coming to watch those DVDs, The Most Incredible Prophecy. The audience said that's what they want to do. Can we come over and watch these DVDs? Just because someone shared a picture of what they are doing on Snapchat. So apparently something good can come out of Snapchat. I didn't think it was possible. <laughs> but even Snapchat can be used to win people for Jesus Christ. Um, and it's just really amazing that it's not so much the tools that you have at your disposal, but it's how you use them. And what that also demonstrates, we'll probably come upon this later on as well. But it just basically goes to the whole thing. Silent testimony. Your life is a witness, but it's actually just an opening. It's like an opening wedge. When people come back to you and they say, why are you different? <laughs> then you have to give them a reason for the hope that is within you. Mm-hmm. If you're just living your life and never actually opening your mouth, then people can never actually really hear the gospel. I mean, how are you going to demonstrate the mark of the beast with a silent life? <laughs> you know, righteousness by faith is silent life. So all of these different things, like our lifestyles can actually be a way of winning people's confidence, opening up their hearts before we actually speak to them. But you often find that when you live your life, they will come to you and you don't have to go to them and say, oh, this is what I believe. They'll ask you, why are you different? The amount of time that when you tell people you're a vegetarian, they ask, oh, is that for spiritual reasons or for personal reasons? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> but that means that they have come to you and asked you, are you a vegetarian because you're spiritual? Then you can say yes and then you can explain why. They will ask you stuff, even if sometimes they won't appreciate you pushing it on them. And we'll talk about that one later on as well. <clears throat> But one thing that I wanted to mention, the time spent with the media, again, Mm -hmm. January 2016. The average time in the UK that someone uses the internet via PC or tablet, three hours and 47 minutes as an average per day. day. And that's in addition, yeah, that's an average. And that's in addition, (laughs) so I mean that there's some people who probably do more than this. And some people who might do far less. And some people don't even watch TV at all. But here, oh no, sorry, don't use the internet at all. You know, grandmothers and all that kind of stuff. But three hours and 47 minutes that people spend on average on the internet. In addition to that, it's just, just an average. So it could be, you could be at work, um, you could be sending an email for work, or you could be watching YouTube or whatever it is, just on average. The average daily television viewing time, two hours and 46 minutes. The average daily use of the internet via mobile phone, an hour and 33. Social media via any device. So people on average go on Facebook or Twitter for an hour and a half a day. (coughs) That's an average. (laughs) But this average is taken across the whole UK population. Among young people, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that this is a very, very modest average of how people actually use the internet do you think that that would be a fair reflection how many of you were at the message i I hope all of you were at the message last night what was the title of the message early morning morning. 
God forbid that this statistic should apply to us when we're claiming to be too busy to have a consistent devotional life. There are so many different things that can act as distractions. And we can say, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. But then it's like I've done an inventory of my life and I'm thinking, okay, when I say I'm busy, what do I actually mean? And when you track back in those days when I get back home and I'm like, oh, I'm a bit tired, I'm just going to listen to a playlist on YouTube for 20 minutes. And then 20 minutes turns into two hours. But it's okay because, you know, it was a gospel playlist. But have you actually just maybe lost two hours that you could have been doing something more effective when you're just passively just staring at a blank screen? It's very, very easy to get caught up in this trap because it's so available that sometimes you can access it without even thinking about it. Television viewing time, two hours and 46 minutes. That's a lot of time. And then we'll say, you know, can I pray for half an hour? Oh, that's too long. I don't have time. But we spend six hours a day on the internet and the TV. How much time do we spend actually reading our Bibles? Going back to the context of this gospel. How can you share this gospel if you don't even know what it is? Do we take time to memorize scriptures? Do we take time to just understand the basic tenets of our faith? Or are we too busy? Sometimes we're too busy doing nothing. And that's the devil's biggest trick. He won't get you to go and do those things that you don't even like. He'll just keep you busy. But you're busy doing nothing. So that's just something to bear in mind. But then what it also means on the reverse, it means that people are constantly online. So that means that there's a very, very large channel. You know, you could go on the bus and speak to someone for five minutes. But then if you were to share something via social media, they have an hour and 29 minutes to look at it. <laughs> so it, it broadens your opportunity, your window of opportunity, in a sense. But it is something that we should bear in mind. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it says, Therefore, be careful how you walk or how you live, not as unwise men, but as what kind of people? Wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. On the opening address Friday, Brother Craig told us, you know, we're living in solemn times. In these solemn times, how are we actually using those solemn times? That's probably a personal inventory thing that we can do. Assess how you are interacting with the digital world. Is it drawing you closer to God? Or is it actually the means of drawing you further away? At any event, when Paul says, I've become all things to all men, how does he know what to become? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people will use that verse, especially like Sunday Christians, so probably to sanction all sorts of like... Yeah. You know, <laughs> but... Messy. <laughs> yeah, barbecue church, uh, you know, yeah. all things open. But when Paul was saying it himself specifically, he said, I've, to the Jews, I've become a Jew. To the Greeks, I became like the Greeks. To those without the law, I became like the, those without the law. How did he know what to become? He got to know them. He understood what they were before he tried to become like them. Does that make sense? You can't really evangelize without taking time to actually understand who you're trying to reach. Because... What it shows us is that one method cannot be used for every single place. Evangelism is not a one-size-fits-all. Just because something works in a specific situation, just because Doug Bachelor does something a specific way, doesn't mean that you should do that on every single contact you meet. Because the people that he was meeting, he was probably doing that for a very specific reason. We can't just copy and mimic what everyone else does. We have to take time to understand where people are coming from. That means that we have to invest time in relationships. And then when you invest time in relationships, you understand what to say, what not to say, and how to say it. The world that we live in today, you could describe it as being postmodern. 
maybe even post-postmodern. <laughs> what are some of the fundamental principles of postmodernism? <laughs> well read from the screen. <laughs> <laughs> the one of the, the fundamental features, I don't know if you've ever, you can maybe relate with this when you speak to people. They say that there is no such thing as absolute truth. So that's why you can have an illustration, for example, where you say to someone, hi, I'm a six-year-old girl. If that's how you feel, <laughs> then that's why, that's fine. Because people no longer accept absoluteness of truth. Everything is relative. Or even like approaching people with the Bible, like we see some of on our tracks, we have mm -hmm. things like 10 biblical facts about the Sabbath day, and that, that works for someone who's already trusting in the Bible, and maybe it might work for someone who's not, but yep. in a post-modern world, to give that to somebody, they're like, that's great, but... But it's not for me. Book. Exactly. It's like, it's you, you believe in God, I, I don't believe in God, it's okay both yeah. ways. But exactly. So literally, people now live in a world where they think, you know, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. Think, well, is it true, is it not true? <laughs> you know, it's either one or the other. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting because it shows the fallacy in our, so to speak, in our time. Because mm -hmm. to say that there's no such a thing, the postmodern thinking, there's a fallacy with it. Because to say there's, a thing, there's not such a thing as absolute truth, is saying that there's a truth, that there's no absolute truth. Yeah, it's an absolute <laughs> statement <laughs> that you're making. But they're making that there's, it's absolutely true. Yeah, basically it's an oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it even shows the fallacy in our thinking, in our logical thinking in this day and age. Mm -hmm. That we try to label something, but we ourselves are, you know, so that's why we're living in an age of uh, solemn, solemn times. Exactly. Because even morality is... Just wild. Wild, yeah. I know, and really what that basically says that, and you find that a lot of the times people, it boils down to people not wanting to be told what to do. People are controlled without realizing it. But as soon as they realize you're trying to control them, they will resist. So a lot of the times people are following Beyonce's agenda <laughs> or Kanye West's agenda without knowing that they're being influenced because they think that they're making a choice. But as soon as you tell them this is the right thing to do, they'll say no. But when they feel like they're exercising their own freedom, they're more open. So it means that we can't always go to people and just say three ways to heaven people thinking, hang on, what about the other things? You know, who are you to say that they're three? What if they're four? But then when you think, you know, how can we get to heaven? It modifies the whole experience and people are more willing to engage in conversation, but they don't necessarily want to be preached to. So I guess in the context of social media, we'll touch, we'll touch on that one later, actually. So there's no absolute truth is one tenant. The second one is what traditional authority is false and corrupt. People are very, very anti-government. There's always like, or anti-religion or anti-establishment. There's always like some kind of conspiracy theory. Someone is trying to hurt us, you know, illuminated this, illuminated that. But people are just very, very skeptical of organizations, especially the organized church when they look at our history. You know, oh, religion has brought so much evil on the world. People are just trying to control you. I don't want to be a part of church. Have you ever heard that before? Mm. You find that people will say that they don't want to be a part of church. It doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want to be spiritual. So don't get those two things mixed up. Just because someone is not interested in church does not mean that they're necessarily not interested in God. People have separated religion and spirituality. So you can still reach someone for God without, them, without ever inviting them to church. <coughs> Morality is personal. Um, they believe that you know, ethics are relative. Again, you know, if, if I want to do that, do what makes you happy. If you want to smoke drugs and do all of these things, who am I to tell you no? You know, there's no such thing as objective morality. And then the last thing, all religions are valid. 
So sometimes when you tell people Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it's true. But they think, you know, well, what about Muslims? What about Buddha? What about all of these different things? They don't want to be told that this is what you have to do. And yet they'll still be willing to explore it unless we tell them that this is the only way. <laughs> so then that's where it comes to the fact that we have to be smart and understand the people that we're trying to reach. You can share the exact same message, but how you share it would determine how successful and how it will be received. Does that make sense? So it's not so much to change your message, just more change your approach. I snapped this from Facebook and Twitter. Unfortunately, I haven't asked the people's permission, but it was on Facebook, so it was fair game, I thought. <laughs> but one of the things that we did yesterday was the board evangelism. I don't, how many of us went board evangelism? Was it a positive experience? Did you have a lot of good responses? Yes. If you look at the question that you're asking, who do you think of Jesus? Is that a very, very overtly religious question? You know, it's not beating around the bush. You're talking about Jesus. You're not hiding the fact that you're Christian. And yet you still had good responses. <laughs> when you look at these questions, well, you can't see the rest of them. What is it that made Paul willing to interact even though they knew it was about Jesus? I was thinking about this all night. And I thought it was basically this. It was a question. <laughs> You're asking for their opinion, not telling them what you think. People will engage in discussion about anything, <laughs> including religion, but if you tell them what you think, they will shut you down. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, it's good to <coughs> ask a question. What do you think about this? If they ask you a question or make a statement, then you question their statement. Yeah. It makes, it makes them think. You know, people are open to questions, even about spirituality. They might not necessarily be open to statements about religion. So don't think that just because someone turned down a statement <laughs> that they're not interested at all. So just don't think that every single time someone says they're not interested, oh, at least we've tried. Let's just dust our feet and walk away. We can think, you know, why did they say no? Why didn't they say yes? Why didn't they want to talk about Jesus? What could I have done differently? And then we can think, actually, you know what? This came from someone's idea, this whole board evangelism thing. Someone thought of that. They thought, well, why don't we ask them questions and get them engaging, get them interacting? <clears throat> I think, oh, yeah, I was just going to say that. Oh, Karen. Uh, I was going to say, like, the one thing I noticed as well is, like, even if someone didn't believe in God, yeah. it's like, oh, if there was a hypothetical God, what would you ask them? And then people would still carry on talking. Mm -hmm. So, like, a lot of the time, you just don't have to walk away because someone said they don't believe in God, mm -hmm. but just say, well, if there was a God, like, our question was, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? So, like, if you just say, oh, well, if you don't believe in God, even if there was a God for, by any chance, what would you ask him? Yeah. And then it opens up a massive discussion of who God would be like, why he does certain things. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I know you said meeting people where they are. Yeah. Even just that, you say, they say, oh, I don't believe in God. It's like, oh, okay, well, well why is that? And yeah. we asked that to one girl, and she was like, oh, well, um, I grew up in a Christian home and the church really hurt me. And it's like, well, I'm really yeah. sorry to hear that. Like, mm -hmm. why was that? And you open up a conversation from there. And then from, by doing that, you understand where the person is, mm -hmm. then you know how you can actually reach them. You can't just say, I'm going to give this great controversy to Alex. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe what they don't, maybe she doesn't need information. She needs reassurance that you're not going to hurt her like other people have. Mm -hmm. And so she's not actually wishing for you to preach to her. <laughs> just want you to tell her that you're different. She wants to be accepted as she is. And so we have to take time to understand people. That's how Paul knew how to become all things to all men. Part of evangelism is actually just paying attention to people. What makes them happy? What makes them sad? What offends them? When you show that you care, they will take your opinion more seriously. Um, <clears throat> yeah, does anyone have any comments before we move on to our last section?
No. Okay. The last session that we're going to talk, I've, I've titled it Digital Decorum. How should we actually behave? So we went to about the whole thing, would Jesus tweet? Rather than, what would Jesus tweet? <laughs> How should we actually behave on, on social media? We mentioned that the apostles used a lot of letters. There's something fascinating that Paul once says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. He was talking about how people were uh, undermining his authority in the Corinthian church, and they were saying, you know, he's a fake apostle and all of these different things. And then in response, Paul is saying, I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to offer myself a letter of recommendation. Why not? In verse 2, he says, because you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. In other words, he was saying that I don't need to defend myself as an apostle because you are the fruits of my labor and you testify that I'm a genuine apostle. So he was saying that they were a letter. If you think about it, if your Facebook profile was a letter, what message would people get out of it? Would it testify that Jesus is the Messiah? Or would it testify that Christianity is just full of people who are judgmental, hypocritical? What letter are you writing with your posts and your statuses? <clears throat> Have you ever noticed that when people interact with the digital world, they're very different to how they actually interact online? Have you ever noticed that? People sometimes online are willing to do things that they won't necessarily do in real life. Oh, no, it's okay. It's, it's on. It's got power. But thank you, I didn't notice that before. <laughs> I want to show you a quick video. And it's just for you to e evaluate your own social interactions to see if any of these things apply to you. Does any of that ring any bells? <laughs> Are there certain things that you do on Facebook that you don't necessarily do in real life? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, sometimes you get friendship requests and thinking, we've got no mutual friends. You have two friends, like, why, who are you? Why are you adding me? But those people, sometimes, or maybe you have the experience where someone adds you as a friend on Facebook, but they'll never speak to you in real life. Yeah. They are oh, yeah, the fake friends. <laughs> but it shows that sometimes there are things that people are willing to do on social media that they're not willing to do in real life. What does that mean for us personally? Why is this? Even Why is it that people act differently? There is something that's called the online disinhibition effect. <clears throat> it's studied in psychology. And they're trying to think, you know, especially things like trolling. Why is it that someone could post such horrible comments in, on someone's photos, even if they're not actually a horrible person in real life? <laughs> and they had six factors. Some of them are quite long-winded. The first one was anonymity. So you don't always have an identity when you're online. You can make up your Facebook with any name. Your Twitter can be any No one has to know that, oh, this Alex is this Alex. It could be an Alex in Brazil. It could be an Alex anywhere. It's anonymous. There's no way of tracing back your behavior to yourself. The other thing is asynchronicity. What that means is that things are not necessarily posted or interacting in real time. So for example, when you, you can post something at 5 o'clock and then you don't have to respond to it. You know, you can post in, you know, that angry status update, oh, I hate virgin trains, always late, da, 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 da. Post it and walk away. You don't have to wait for a response. Whereas if I'm speaking to you in real life, I would not necessarily say that because you would respond and then I have to respond. Does that make sense? So because there's like a delay in how people, we post something and then they respond, we're more free, we feel like we're disinhibited and we can post things that we're not necessarily post in real life. The other thing is invisibility. No one can actually see you. You're in the comfort of your own home. So lipstick introjection. <laughs> what this means is that 
when you speak with someone, I don't know if you ever heard of this. How many of you find it awkward making? Sorry, I keep like in your way. How many of you find it awkward making eye contact? How many of you would, let's say, for example, if you're um, upset, maybe, and in your mind you're thinking about how upset you are and what you would tell to this person, but then when you see them face to face, you soften your tone. <laughs> Does that ever happen? So you're gonna say, oh, you know, you hurt me, da 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 da. But when you say, oh, you know, um, I was just thinking. Maybe that wasn't the best way of doing things. And then you soften your tone because you're not looking at them face to face. Those facial cues soften how you interact with people. But then when you're dealing online, you are free to, because, you know, emotions, your eyes, they convey your emotions, your fear, your hurt, and all those different things. But when you're online, you can place whatever characteristics on the other person because you can't actually see them. So when you read a text message, you hear a voice in your head, but the person's not actually speaking. Because that's just your impression of how you think, oh, this is how they would say it. So, for example, you could post something on Facebook and then someone who has a very, very negative impression of Christianity would just think, oh, you're just being judgmental. And then they'll attack you even though that's not even what you meant. The other thing is dissociative imagination. People think that social media is not real. So it's not reality. So you can say whatever you want. It's just a game. And then the last thing is minimization of authority. No one's really in control. When you go on social media, for example, you could be a really, really, really rich person and you can make a YouTube account and no one will actually watch it because your social status in real life has no bearing on social media. What matters is how charismatic you are, how funny you are, how interesting your posts are and your hair tutorials are to everyone else. So it means that anyone can be a celebrity on Facebook, even if you're actually, quote unquote, a nobody in real life because there's no authority. It's like a free space. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Like all things, it can be both. I want us to look at this anonymity. So this online disinhibition effect, it's what's called benign version and then a toxic version. The toxic version is the one that makes people trolling and all those different things or just attack you, those angry. You know, every single YouTube comment, if you just scroll down, there's like an argument about Jesus somewhere, even if it's just about badminton. It just always ends up in an argument. But then there's the benign version, which is actually a positive thing. Take, for example, anonymity. How is this relevant? Does anyone recognize the man in this picture? How did you know it was Nicodemus? It's night. <coughs> it's night. Jesus, well, Nicodemus is known as the man who came to Jesus by night. He wanted to come to Jesus. He wanted to come to Christ. But he wouldn't do it during the day. <laughs> so he came by night. Why? It was anonymous. No one could see him. It was invisible. No one could, you know, there, there's asynchronicity. No one was there to respond to what he did. So Nicodemus wanted to know about Jesus, but he didn't want other people to know that he wanted to know about Jesus. So he came when nobody knew that he was looking for Jesus because then he could do it in private. Is it possible that sometimes when you speak to people about God, they will say that they're not interested when their friends are around. But if they're alone, they'll actually look into things that they would never tell you they're interested in in real life. Hmm. Nicodemus... He's an interesting passage or interesting person because he speaks to Jesus in John chapter 3 and then Jesus plants the seed himself and then Nicodemus forsook everything, got baptized and followed Jesus. Is that how the story went? Did Nicodemus get baptized as soon as John chapter 3 finished? You see him the next time in John chapter 7 when the Jews are trying to kind of basically stone Jesus and then he stands up and he says, you know, does a man condemn, or does our law condemn a man before it first hears him? He's defending Jesus, but he's still not following him. 
And then you get to John, the, at the end of the book, of, I think it's Matthew chapter 27, 28, when the people are bringing their myrrhs and all the spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Guess who was among them? Nicodemus, now he's making an open profession of his faith. But it took two years, even though Jesus himself planted the seeds. So there were some people that Jesus could not reach <laughs> there and then. It's a process, but because sometimes we want to see overnight results, we share the gospel, there's no immediate response, and we think it's a lost cause. But we have to still be faithful even if we don't see the results. I'm just going to look at this part just for the sake of time. Sometimes we turn away from people who we see as unpromising and unattractive because you realize, uh, no, 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 that. At the very time when you turn from them, so this is someone who might be thinking that they're not, in, you might be looking at someone thinking, oh, this person is a lost cause. They're not interested in God at all. Here it says that they may appear to be living careless lives, but they're not insensible to the influence of the Holy Spirit. You might see someone in real life, and then you think, oh, this person would never want to know about God. It doesn't mean that when they see something about Jesus on their Facebook, they're not tempted to click on it. So still post, even though people will not speak to you in real life about your religion and your spirituality. When they're anonymous, when they're invisible, and when there's no one watching them, they're willing to be more open about things than they would be in real life. The other thing to understand, when we're posting different things, people are in different phases of their walk with Christ. This is like a very, very simple, I like it, but it's quite simple. Three stages you could think of in people's walk with Christ. The first stage is sowing, then reaping, and then disciple. What does it mean to be in sowing? In sowing, there are people who are unaware of the gospel and they're not interested. Then in reaping, there are people who are aware of the message and they're interested. And then in disciple, there are people who have accepted the message and you're nurturing people who have already accepted it and they're already believers. This should, in, this should influence how, and how you try to reach people online. For example, if you were to post a sermon by C.D. Brooks or Henry Wright, or one of those amazing preachers to somebody who is not interested in the gospel at all, would they watch it? They, they, they're not interested. You know, if, whether, if, whether or not God exists, they don't care. So these people cannot be reached by sermons, but they can be engaged by dialogue. What do you think of Jesus? Like the board evangelism. They can be reached by current events. All those different things in a spiritual way. You can reach people just by being nice and being kind. Building relationships. But they're not necessarily ready for the full-blown truth. There are friends who are aware of the message and the interest. There might be even other Christians, but they don't know about our message specifically. So we can find ways of building relationships with them in a way that they would understand. And then there are people here who are Adventists. You can tell them about different things, Ellen White quotes and all those different things, and they'll like that and they'll understand it. But this person never will. What I'm trying to say is that you have to know where your audience is. You can't reach everyone because not everyone is in the same bracket. So if you're trying to witness on Facebook, you have to post things that are specific for the people that you're trying to reach and recognize that you won't reach everyone. So if you have 500 friends and only 10 people have liked your posts, don't get upset. Maybe it's only those 10 people who are in the specific group that you're trying to reach. I'm going to ask for a volunteer. We are wrapping up closely. I'm going to ask for a volunteer. It's nothing complex, nothing embarrassing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. When you look at this picture, what do you see? As much information that you can draw out of it. Footprints in the sand. Footprints in the sand, yes. Anything else? They're walking towards you. Excellent. They're quite, the face is quite like 
Okay, with, yeah, with terms like forensic investigation. <laughs> um, but basically, how many people are in this? Who people, who, how many people made this path? One. One person, and he was walking towards the screen yeah. in the sand. Thank you very much. What can you tell me from this picture? Several people have been there. Several people have been there. Hard to decide how many. They're four to remember the place. <laughs> is it one person or is it many people? At least three or two. Or at least three or two. Does anyone think it's one person? It could be one person. <laughs> the feet look quite similar sized. Where are they going? What's the point of this whole thing? There is an eloquence far more powerful than the eloquence of words in the quiet, consistent life of a pure, true Christian. What a man is has more influence than what he says. If people look at your Facebook posts, your timeline, does it look like this? People can say, oh yeah, this person is a Christian. They believe in X, Y, and Z. Or does it look like this? The things that you post, the things that you like, is it consistent? Or do you post one day things of the world that everyone would like, and then the other day we're posting Ellen White. And people are looking at this and they're thinking, who is this person? <laughs> Where are they going? They can't get any decisive image from the thing that we post because it's, it's just so disconnected. Does everyone get the point? It's so disconnected. So sometimes, even like the things that you're tagged in by your other friends, you know sometimes like, you always have those embarrassing moments where you are scrolling through Facebook and then you see your friend from church and then they're posted and they're tagged into something that you didn't know that they actually ever did, but somebody else's face, and you think, oh, I, d I didn't know they were like that. Not judging, but just like a different side of the person. Because when you've seen them, you've never seen that side of them. But then they have that side. But then when you post it on yours, it now becomes inconsistent. So people no longer know who exactly the real person is. But here we're told that the eloquence, that living testimony, is only actually a testimony if it's consistent. If we can look at your actions and every single time when someone annoys you, you always respond in a specific way. You're always kind, you're always courteous. But when you're erratic, people don't know how that responds. Does that make sense? And I think in closing, Jesus had a lot of enemies. And there were a lot of people who were always trying to plot his downfall. And there's another example that is spoken about in the book of John, where he's in the temple just before they tried to crucify him and all those different things. Remember the time when the Pharisees and the scribes they sent people to watch Jesus to catch him out to see if they can, he can say something bad and then they can use it against him? And so these people are like in the crowd thinking we're looking for some incriminating evidence. And then they've been sent to go and get Jesus and bring him back. And when Jesus is standing in the temple preaching his sermon, he delivers his sermon and then at the end of it, everyone packs their bags and goes home. <laughs> then these men get back to the Jews and then they're like, where's Jesus? You know, why haven't you brought him? And when they say, oh, no one's ever spoken like this man, this brother's deep, they went to arrest him. But then as they heard him speak, they themselves became somewhat convicted. How is it that Jesus' word had so much power? There's this quote from Help in Daily Living, page 470. It says, the officers who were sent to Jesus came back with the report that never man spoke as he spoke. But the reason for this was that what? Never man lived as he lived. Had his life been other than it was, he could not have spoken as he did. His words bore with them a convincing power because they came from a heart pure and holy, full of love and sympathy, benevolence and truth. In other words, when your 
offline life is inconsistent with your online life, you can never be a powerful witness online for Christ. Because the thing that people see online is inconsistent with the thing that they see offline. So we have to live the life wherever we might be so that when people see, oh, you're a Christian online, they're not surprised that you went to GYC. <laughs> if people weren't on your Facebook, they're not surprised when someone tags you in your prayer because, yeah, yeah that sounds like you. But then when they think you're like a renegade, <laughs> and when they go on your Facebook and when you're like posting, oh, this Jesus, how I love Jesus, then they're thinking, who are you? When you're nice in person, but when you're posting things that are not so nice on Facebook, they think again, who are you? But because Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever, he was able to have that power in his ministry. And God help us that we might be able to have the same consistency in our own lives, and then our lives can actually be a living testimony, even if they are silent. They will lead to opportunities to reach out to Jesus. Does that make sense? Amen. Does anyone have any questions? I know it's the time's already gone. <laughs> But yeah, as promised, I've got the handouts, so I'm going to hand them out now. Curiosity can no longer ruin the surprises. Um, but let's just say a quick word of prayer just to finish off our session. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the session that we have just had. I thank you for the things that we have learned about how we can be able to use the tools that are available for us to reach the people who are around us, how we can be a light to the world, in a world that is more digitally and technologically advanced than it ever was before. Give us the wisdom, give us the motivation, Lord, to reach out to people wherever they are, to find the intuitive ways that we can bring new methods of labor into force so we can be able to reach more people for Christ. Be with each and every person here, Lord. Help us to identify our networks, our people, our friends that we can be able to witness to. And give us the wisdom to know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.